Hello, I'm Lucas Meldrum and welcome to That Windsurf Podcast. This is the podcast where we'll have conversations with people in and around the windsurf community. Since a lot of us are stuck at home, I thought I'd bring that beach talk to the comfort of your home. Each episode will have new guests and a general topic. If you don't know me, hello, I'm Lucas. I'm a pretty typical 19-year-old from Brighton, England, except I'm fully addicted to windsurfing. I compete in UK pro events and like everyone, I'm trying to get better and better. I've also got my YouTube channel with this podcast as well as behind the scenes of my windsurfing life and trips. So go check it out and be sure to subscribe. Anyway, enough about me, let's get into the podcast. play a bit of guitar, do you? No, I ain't using that. Oh, he just stands there and press the yeah. button all the time. I think we'll have to do it again. I've already had a bottle of whiskey. Is that the end? <laughs> <laughs> How's it going, people? Welcome back to That Windsurf Podcast. It turns out people actually quite like the first one, so we're, we're back to continue the series. I'm super excited about this episode. I'm joined by multiple British champion, wave champion, John Sky, and probably the biggest name in windsurfing behind the lens, uh, John Carter. Hello, welcome. How you doing? I'm here, all good. Yeah. <laughs> I guess first things first, um, obviously we have a bit of a name situation to John's here, so I guess you're both cool with, with Skyboy and JC, is that all right? Yeah, that's all right. I'm yep. getting a bit old now for Skyboy, but it's okay, I can do yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> how, did, how did you actually come up with that one? I didn't, I don't know how, I don't even know where it came from. I think Tima actually, but a long, long time ago when I was actually a boy and uh, and now I should be called like Sky Grandpa or something. I'm getting on a bit. <laughs> so, obviously, uh, we're in this situation with the coronavirus, and um, everyone's plans are a bit up in the air. So, what what have you two been been getting up to, and how have you been keeping entertained in, in these times? Personally, yeah, this would normally be my busiest time of the season. I, uh, I would have just got back from Hawaii from doing a big photo shoot out there. Um, Plus, you know, a few events normally happen around these times. So it's kind of quite odd for me not to be traveling. So I've been doing that all my life. So I'm at home, uh, just keeping busy, really. I've uh, like tidied my office, done all the jobs around the house, and I'm doing a bit of social media stuff for Windsurf Magazine. So, yeah, the cameras are kind of on hold. But, uh, yeah, spending a lot of time with the family as well. So that's that's quite nice. You know, because normally I'm away six months a year. So it's quite nice just to be home. Obviously, it's not the best situation in the world financially or anything. But uh, you just have to deal with that, same as everyone else. Yeah, we've just got to see what, what uh, you know, how this all evolves. But, you know, you've got to stay positive and, and do whatever you can do to just get through, you know, until we know... Yeah, what our future beholds, basically. Bye, boy. Yeah, um, well, we've been, I'm, in, I'm in Spain. I'm in the Canary Islands. So we've been on like a full, full lockdown for six weeks now, maybe a bit longer. Yeah, longer than that. And, yeah, and it's been, we're not even allowed out for sport or, or anything. So um, to be honest, the, fir- the first, first couple of weeks, or maybe even the first month, was actually really nice, because it was just sort of like, I don't know about you guys, but I just seemed to spend the whole time rushing around, trying to get this done, that done, and, and suddenly it was like, just had time on my hands, and it was so relaxing and nice, but now I'm definitely getting over it, I, I need to go out and do something and run around a bit, so um, it looks like we might be allowed out to do exercise from, I think, Saturday, so um, looking forward to that, definitely. You've been doing a bit of skateboarding, I've seen. 
Yeah, well, the, the first two weeks, I, I came back from South Africa and I self-isolated myself up in um, my, my wife's mum's got a house up in the mountains. So I went up there on my own and it's just like absolutely nothing there. Not even like t- no TV, no internet and just a skateboard ramp that we built like a year ago. So I was, it was epic to be honest. I was just there like skating all day, working, <laughs> drinking, beer. Beer, uh, drinking beer, yeah, just doing what I wanted. And then, um, and then I had to come home. So it was, it was a mixed feeling. It's quite mm. nice to, it's nice to be home, see the family, but then I, I definitely missed the sort of the, the freedom up there just, because they actually had space, I could do what I wanted pretty much. So that's all good. It's all good. Mm. Now you got the wife shouting at you again. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I was like, after a couple of days, all Sorry, right, no. I'm over this. <laughs> I'm over this. I'm, I want to want to go back up the mountain. But um, but yeah, she'll send she'll send you up there. Yeah, she she, uh, she almost did. So. <laughs> I guess it might actually be you. Probably will get out before us, and we'll be. It'll be summer and we're stuck inside in Spain and Italy are sort of a bit more frisk because obviously you've been locked down earlier than us. Yeah, I think that they're talking, it looks like we, we'll be able to go on the water from Saturday, although it's a bit vague. They've sort of said certain, like you can do sport within one kilometre of your house. So I am I can go surfing within one kilometre, but I can't really go windsurfing within one kilometre. Yeah. But, but then on the other hand, they say that if you're like a sort of a professional athlete, you can you can go and train so I could potentially pull that card out but it's all a, it's all a bit vague and yeah. we have to see but. I think that's the frustrating thing in in the UK anyway it's that we've got this hour of exercise they say but you know it's very vague and then some other places they you know they put in sort of some pretty concrete rules on what you can and can't do I think in Cornwall they're still surfing right yeah I mean the whole surfing thing is a bit strange because it was it all came about when this I think it was a police officer that posted something online the chief police officer said that you can do it mm. it's, a bit, it's a bit weird at the moment but yeah on the on the isle of Wight, the uh there were some guys surfing last week and the the police like called them out of the water and told them to go home so, so yeah it's different everywhere really? i heard yeah. i heard nuki and that's packed but uh, that seems a bit it's a bit vague a bit a bit random if you can some place you can do stuff than others anyway. well, hopefully we all we'll come out of it pretty soon and everyone will be back to normal yeah Nah, yeah. Hopefully, it won't be too long. So anyway, I sort of want to move on and move into your sort of backstories. Obviously, for Skyboy, how how you started windsurfing and your competitions and and stuff, and then JC, how you actually got into doing uh, windsurf photography. Well, I started um, I started sailing basically. I, I live just north of London in Hertfordshire, which is in reality not the best place to, to windsurf um so i was sort of stuck on a lake pretty much until until i could learn until i learned to drive so my early windsurfing was all lake based and um obviously like a, like a lot of racing kind of like longboard racing back then and a little bit of shoreboard racing if it ever got windy which it rarely did and um and then as soon as i learned to drive i just was driving to the sea all the time and I don't know, some, some, I was just always, I was always competing mainly because I, because I started on a lake and it was all about racing. It was sort of like natural to, there was like the Wednesday night series, which was like the, the kind of like the, the lowest level. And then there was like the Sunday racing, which was the next step up. And then once, and then there was like the regional longboard series, which was like the L, LB, I don't know, London, London kind of circuit. Then there was the national. So I sort of just followed this sort of 
line of, of racing. So it was always sort of like competing. And then when I went to, I, I learned to drive and I was just wave sailing the whole time or trying to wave sail. And then I went to uni and again, I was just wave sailing down in Southampton. And then sort of when I came out of that, kind of the competition thing was sort of like naturally sort of pulling me. And so I just sort of followed and just little by little went up all the steps, you know, like the, I did the amateur series for in the UK and ended up winning that in, I think slalom wave and I think freestyle, if it was around about then was when freestyle was starting and then went on to the, the national and then PWA and, and then the rest is just sort of like following step by step all the way up, like rung by rung. But it's very different from when you see some of like the, you know, a kid like Ricardo. Like my, my first PWA event was actually the same as Ricardo's. And me, I'd done years of like steps to get there. And he had basically just come straight from Margarita um, and annihilated everyone. So it's like a very different different route to the same place. But, um, yeah. but yeah, I got there in the end. How old were you when you did your first PWA? I was pretty old, really. I think I, I, did, I did one island event, um, I think probably when I was about 22 or 23. But I think I, I first started properly doing doing the PWA I think at 24 20 maybe 23 24 um yeah so it was you know really really late compared with a lot of guys and and like I, I came along and I think luckily like I, I looked really young so even though I was 24 like I kind of looked looked the same age as like Swifty and Ricardo and Cal Lee that were all sort of coming along at the same time and I kind of just got like grouped with them which was like so sort of put me in like ah oh, this is the new generation of guys and I think I'm like maybe one and one or two years younger than say Kevin Pritchard but somehow he was like the older generation and I was like with all the the kids coming up yeah and then so you moved to Gran Canaria sort of well I think for me like living because I grew up like, like I say like north of London I kind of knew that I never wanted to to ever live there so I was always, when I was traveling, I was always kind of like had one eye open looking like, ah, oh, could I live here? Could I live there? And like, for example, in Australia, it was like quite nice, but there was a Maui, I love Maui, but it was so far away from home. And then after uni, I spent one year living in First Ventura and I really, really liked it, but it was just a little bit too kind of slow and, um, I don't know, after coming from England, it's just like everything was just a bit too slow for me. Desert, isn't it? Yeah, more than that, it's just like the, the way of life and the, the attitude of the people. It's like super laid back, which is great when you're on holiday. It's like still one of my favorite places to go. But like when you're actually living there, it kind of drove me a bit, kind of like got a bit frustrated. And then I met my wife and she was from Gran Canaria. And I started spending time here. And it's just like, it's just really nice because it's very, you know, it's a very near to home or close to home. Um, I can get back almost within 24 hours for hardly any money if I need to. Um, and then we have really good wind, really good waves. It's like nice temperature all year round. It's you've got a little bit of a season to make it hot and cold, which I, which I quite like. But basically, it's just really nice here and quite cheap. And yeah, so I think we've, I've, been, I've been with my wife now for... 17 years or something so probably sort of spending a lot of time here since about 15 years ago and sort of you know it's like slowly 
slowly sort of moving here bit by bit and spending more time here until I could say I was living here. Cool. Yeah. When was the last time you were in the UK? Uh, I went back in, I was back in October, I think. Um, you met yeah. up with me, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. Actually, we had we had a, a good, I went ended up going to, where did we go? Shoreham with Nick Baker. So that was quite mm. nice. Oh, okay. Um, I, I do actually, I really, really miss it. I used to spend, because before, like living here, like, to, to travel anywhere, it's nearly always cheaper and easier to go through the UK. So I'd always fly to the UK, see my folks, have a couple of days there, and then fly direct to Cape Town or fly direct to Maui or, or China or wherever I had to go. But then since the kids came along, it's kind of like now the biggest factor is just time away from family. So now rather than go through England, which would always take a little bit more time, I always just end up flying kind of direct, which... Um, which means I miss a lot of the the kind of the UK time. So I, I used to always have a few days here and there and get the odd session and, you know, I'd come back from Maui and if there was a good forecast, stay a few days and do a trip or something. And now I kind of miss that a bit, but you can't have it all, so. Oh, well, you live in paradise, winter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then um, you've got into the, the sort of RRD, R&D, sort of developing and testing sales. How did that come about? Um, yeah, I started like almost exactly 10 years ago, um, Roberto, I, I was on RD boards and at the time Nash sales and then Roberto really wanted someone to, to come and ride on his sales and, and start to work a bit on them and I'd done a pretty good job with him just with the boards, he was pretty happy with what I was doing. So he really sort of was really pushing to get me on the sales and I, I joined originally just to kind of like test and help develop and you know, I just moved, moved the gear forward a little bit and then that went really, really well. And after three years, he was just like, you know, like we really need someone like designing full time for RRD. Uh, would you be up for basically learning the trade and doing it? And at the time we were having our sales um, designed by Thomas Pearson from Simmer. And so Thomas kind of like took me under his wing and kind of basically gave me like an apprenticeship for sort of about three years. And slowly it worked from, you know, in the beginning, just testing and saying, oh, I want more power. I want this or I want that. To then me telling him like, ah, oh, I want more power. So I'm going to do this. And he'd say, ah, oh, yeah, but maybe try. If you do that, maybe this will happen. And then in the end, I was doing it all myself and then just passing it by him until in the end, I was just doing it all on my own anyway. So, mm. um, and yeah, it's been, it's been really, really good. I've, I've, you know, I absolutely love it. Um, and yeah it's just great to just sort of keep pushing the gear and trying to make it better all the time and i get to go sailing a lot and and i get a good mix of sailing as well which is something i've, I've always i've always really enjoyed you know like a good mix of you know a bit of slalom one day some waves some free ride stuff foiling and just really mixing it up and get to test everything and try everything and just keep moving everything forward so it's, it's good enjoy it Mm. yeah it must be quite rewarding like when you can take some kit out and then fix it a bit and then it's you know better the next time it must be quite cool to yeah yeah def definitely it's um i think that the most like is it the, the novelty's worn off a little bit now but like in the beginning when kind of you work so much on a sale and then you suddenly see it in production and you see someone else on it that's bought it and it's just like wow you know like i kind of made yeah. that and like, so, so yeah, it's pretty satisfying. But. Sweet. 
JC, how, how did you start your windsurf photography career? Oh, that goes back a long way. Um, how, how old are you, Lucas? Uh, I'm 19. 19. So what year were you born? 2000, exactly. Okay. So, yeah, my first <laughs> trip to Australia was 1986. So that was 14 years before you were born. <laughs> um, one of my best friends, he was uh, like British wave sailing champion at the time. His name was Nigel House. So you might not have heard of him. But uh, uh, when, I, when I was growing up, he was the <laughs> one of the ones to look up to. Like, yeah, yeah, he was around the time of Duncan Coombs, the PWA head judge. Um, and at the time, Nigel worked in the bank. We both left school. I worked in the post office, and Nigel heard one of his friends had been out to Geraldton the year before in Australia, and he decided he was going to quit his job and head out to Australia for six months to windsurf and I, I was like there's no way I'm going to let my best mate go off to Australia <laughs> for six months while I'm stuck in the post office so I handed in my notice bought a ticket to Australia the cheapest airline possible and yeah we arrived in Perth one sort of October morning or whenever it was bought a car straight from the airport drove I, I, I had no idea where we were going and we drove straight to Geraldton and I ended up staying there for six months through a whole Australian winter. And yeah, during that time, I didn't even take a camera with me, but um, obviously there wasn't much to do up there. And I started taking pictures of my friend Nigel and, you know, I had no clue what I was doing. Uh, the next year he went off to Maui and he managed to blag me his sponsor at that time there was quite a bit of money around and he managed to blag his sponsors to pay for me to go with him even though i still knew nothing about it so i went out to hawaii and i ended up staying there for six months again um and kind of slowly learned you know how to take better shots through trial and error um but all i had was a water house and i didn't even have a big lens i was just uh if it was too big, I couldn't. I couldn't even shoot really. Um, I was. I was kind of stuck on the beach. But uh, yeah, I was just swimming around at Hookeeper or Spreckersville, uh, taking shots, slowly learning, and then probably over the next ten years, I kind of gradually. You know, you can't just come into windsurfing photography and go straight to the top. I gradually sort of learned uh, how to take better shots, saved up for equipment. Um, learn off the other photographers. It was a big scene back then in the sort of 90s. There was all the top guys out there and uh, they were doing these massive photo shoots. I was just like the grommet on the beach kind of swimming around. But you always saw helicopters flying around and Robbie Nash doing all these shoots. And yeah, luckily, you know, after about 10 years of kind of plugging away, I, I managed to get my foot in the door for a few things. And it's kind of slowly grown from there. Um, obviously, I've you know I've been doing it for thirty years now, so it's quite a long career. Um, probably been making a, a living out of it since the year two thousand. Uh, it took about ten years probably to build up where I could. You know, the first few years in Hawaii, I was digging holes, washing dishes in Charlie's restaurant, just doing all sorts of odd jobs just to sort of pay my way. 
but then after maybe 10 years I, I was starting to get a few jobs guys like starboard or any anyone just hiring me for the day and yeah here i am now um and luckily so did, didn't you miss out a bit of that story what in australia <laughs> weren't you a rock star at one point oh yeah <laughs> yeah in 1987 i went i was uh, in geraldton and i walked into a second-hand shop and there was a guitar on the wall and i picked it up and i was like strumming a bit and uh the guy in there he goes oh mate you play a bit of guitar do you I was like, <laughs> yeah, I can play. And he goes, you want to be in a band? And like, literally three nights later, I was playing in like the Tarkula Tavern in Geraldton. Um, and I ended up playing in a band there for like three months, like four nights a week. Uh, on New Year's Eve, we played in front of 2,000 people uh, supporting this band called the Easy Beats, which were around during the 60s. That was my biggest gig ever, but uh, <laughs> that's just another string to my bow. Oh, so I'm still available for rock concerts. <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah. Just going back a little bit. So when when you were starting at the beginning, were you doing like sort of mainly water, uh, like water shots? Yeah, I had a homemade housing. Back in those days, that was before digital. So we were using like slide film and uh, manual focus cameras. Um, which had a roll of 36 shots. So when you swam out in the water, like nowadays, you've got like a memory card that's got 2,000 pictures on it. Back then, you had 36 pictures. So right. you had to be a lot more picky with what you took. But, you know, when I first started, I had no clue what I was doing. I went out at Keeper, and just people were coming by me, and I was just clicking away at anything. But obviously, you know, like films cost... 20 bucks a roll so you don't want to waste money on rubbish shots so you, you soon get more a bit more choosy what you're shooting i think there was a an event in about 1993 something like that and i was out at who keeper as the lower classic and i i'd swum out for the semi-finals and i had my manual focus camera and i used to pre-focus it to a distance of about five four five yards so the sailors had to come in that area for it to be in focus. I had a little bit of leeway, but uh, it just happened. I just happened to be in the right spot. And like Robbie Nash did this massive aerial right in front of me. And on the other side, Polakow did an aerial coming towards me. Someone else did something. And I this one roll of film, I had like my best shots I'd ever taken. And I sold one of the pictures to Gastra, I think Robbie Nash had just taken over as a director at the time. I think I sold it for like a thousand dollars or something, which was for wow. me, that was like, <laughs> that was like, yeah. Oh my God, that was my biggest selling shot uh, by far at the time. But it kind of gave me a bit of hope that maybe, you know, there's a, maybe a living to be made out of it. But with windsurfing photography, it's not really a thing you're doing for money. You kind of, you do it because you enjoy it. You like seeing the shots. You know, it's a, you know, it's a passion thing. You know, all the other photographers, you know, obviously you're trying to make a bit of money, but, um, you know, the, the satisfaction of capturing good shots, swimming out and doing all that sort of thing is kind of why you do it. Obviously, you know, it becomes a business eventually, but, but yeah, when you're starting, you're just trying to take your best shots, basically. Yeah. But yeah, I was spent a lot of time in the water until I could afford a big lens, which... I think that was about 1999. I spent $7,600 on a Canon 600. It was like the best lens you could buy. And I was like, I used it for about a year at Who Keeper. 
and you know then on the big days you could take just as good shots as anyone else and I think it was in 1999 I was shooting uh, I think it was Nick Baker, Danny Seals and uh, Ant Baker down at Spreckersville and I had all my equipment in the back of the car on the beach when I swam in the car was gone I was like I think some of my mates must have played a prank on me because I'd hidden the keys in the in the uh, petrol cap. And, you know, I asked around and everyone was like, no, we haven't taken your car. And uh, so oh, I phoned no. up the police. Police came along um, and it turned out that, you know, some locals had seen me where I put the car, the keys in the, in the glove box, in the uh, petrol cap. And they'd driven off, nicked everything I owned and... Uh, left the car in the cane fields. And I was flying home from Maui the next day, so I was basically all I had was the wetsuit I was wearing, my water housing with that one roll of film, and nothing else. Oh, <laughs> I had my passport in the apartment, but I'd lost it, all my camera gear basically. Is that the so same that film was... <laughs> with the with the epic shot on it or no? No, no. Okay. <laughs> Luckily not. But... Yeah, that was a big blow. That was in 1999. So I basically had to start all over again then and save up from scratch. I didn't really have any money and buy all that stuff, you know, over the next few years. So. Did, did it actually, but, uh, of interest, did it actually help you because you like upgraded the stuff at the same time or? No, oh, I had the best no. stuff. <laughs> oh, God, <laughs> yeah, it was a disaster. Oh, totally screwed you, yeah. I actually cried on the way home on the plane. I was sat there crying, sniffling away. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, you have to bounce back. So I kind of slowly saved up again and, yeah, replaced all the equipment, which, yeah, wasn't a nice experience for sure. But it's tough, that. It was tough. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I guess sort of later on, you, so you do a lot of stuff with the windsurf, Mag. What's your position there? Um, yeah, I've been working for Windsurf UK since about the year 2000 full-time as like a roving reporter. Yeah. Um, uh, Finn Mullen is the editor. He's Timo Mullen's brother, who was on the podcast last week. Mm-hmm. And I kind of gather stories for the magazine wherever I am. Sometimes it's UK storms or it's at events or if I'm in Hawaii, I'll go and interview Robbie Nash or whoever. And that's kind of in my role. So I'm always on the lookout for a good story. You live in Brighton, don't you, Lucas? Yeah. Somewhere down there. I've shot Nick Baker in front of the pier or, or anything like that. Just yeah. something interesting for the magazine. So, yeah, that's my kind of role with Windsor. Yeah. I guess there's, over the years, you've probably found there's been a sort of the evolution from the, from the magazine to the online, hasn't there? Yeah. Obviously, there's been big changes yeah, there was the days where you used to shoot film, which was, you know, a roll of slides and you have to send them off all over the world to magazines, to the digital era. And Actually, you know, actually I've got to say, for me, that's where, where I think you made your biggest, you, you were one of the early adopters now of the digital. Um, that, that's what that, from, from, my, from my recollection from the other side of it, I remember working with some of the, the you know, at the time, the great photographers and they were still using film. And it was such a ball ache. And then there was you that had like mastered the digital much better than everyone else. And yeah. You, that, for me, that's where you killed it. And yeah. 
you know I'm not the master of technology, but I, yeah, I did get into the digital side fairly early on. And especially because I worked for the PWA, that was kind of a necessary sort of way of uh, doing events is getting the, getting the pictures up every day. Whereas before that, when I was working for the PWA, I go to an event in 1995 and they give you 25 rolls of film and that had to last you the whole week to shoot the event. And you had no idea how to kind of budget that film out. So it might be an epic day the last day and you've shot all your rolls on the first day. It was really mm. weird. Whereas these days, you know, if it's the epic days on the last day of an event with digital, you can just bust out 5,000 pictures or whatever and, you know, start again. But, you know, before that, it was uh, slide films, which you had, you know, you only got given so many roles. But, you know, so the magazine and photography's changed because everything's like now, you know, people want to see events, you know, almost straight away the pit the galleries in the evening the write-up of it all so the magazines have got to find a new slot you know to work in that environment because you know it's old news if you know it used to be the pwa went to baja in 1995 and you used to wait for the mag you used to go to the wh smiths every day when the new issue came through and you were super excited to these are the yeah. first time you'd ever seen the pictures but nowadays everyone's seen it so the magazine's got to work differently and kind of get into fresh angle. So that's part of my, the other half of my job is actually doing the events and photo shoots or whatever, but then looking for interest in stories or different angles for the magazine side. So yeah, that's the sort of the modern way of doing things, I guess. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think the coolest things about the mags are the, are the trips you do that obviously you spoke about last week, your team and Ross and I'm sure Skyball has been on a few and, yeah, that's always cool to open up up the mag and see an awesome shot of some place somewhere off in Scotland or wherever it may be. Um, yeah, yeah, they're the original things you do, which no one else has ever seen. Yeah. So you know, you know, a lot of the stuff I do for the magazine, I make sure it's not online. I try and tell the sailors to, you know, if you do put a picture up, just like a little sort of rubbish one or like yeah. a sneaky little preview. And then you can come out with something in the magazine that's super, you know, people want to buy the, the issue for. And how much time do you spend, like, editing the photos? Could you edit photos back in the day, or is it just...? No, obviously, the um, when you got the slides back, if you'd messed up the exposure on the camera, then that's it, you've ruined the shot. There's no going back. So if you messed up a whole... Say you were in a helicopter and you had the wrong exposure... You get that roll of film back, and they're all black. There's no way of pulling that back with the slides. So, uh, like, I always remember the first PWA event I did. You know, the guys gave me 30 rolls of film, and I was like, if I mess this up, I I didn't even get the films back. They went straight off to the PBA offices or whatever. So they see your work unedited or any, you know, you haven't got time to straighten up a horizon or anything like that. You are really under the cosh, you know, you're under pressure because you just give them the films and they see what you can do or what you've done. And if you've messed it up, you've basically balls up the whole event, you know, or the photos from it at least. Um, so that that's kind of was quite pressure. Whereas these days, you know, Photoshop, you can save shots because, you know, that's the luxury of digital. 
but you can also, if you shoot in raw, you can save the shots if they're slightly over or underexposed, or you know, if you've got a wonky horizon for half the shots, or you've got a bit of dust on the sensor, you can get rid of all that stuff and make it look. You can make a bad shot look quite good with a bit of photoshopping, put it like that. But yeah, personally, um, the editing sides, it's not so much fun. Like in the old days, I could go and shoot uh, like a photo shoot. I could shoot 10 rolls of slide film. I just have to go and drop it off at the developing place and then go and have beers. But, yeah. you know, these days I'm at a photo shoot. I shoot 3,000 shots in a day. I've then got to go home that night and try and keep on top of all the editing, which builds up. So if I then say I just went out for dinner and left it and then shot another 3,000 shots the next day, then I've got a mountain of 6,000 shots to edit, which can build up into a horrific, you know, <laughs> amount of work, you can imagine. Hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I try to work every night on any any job I do and edit everything as I go. I just don't want to build it up for the next day. I don't want to wake up the next morning and think, oh, no, I've still got 3,000 pictures from yesterday because I couldn't be bothered. I always try and I'm quite often sitting up till two in the morning, just editing everything so I can tick off that day, move on, start the next day fresh. Yeah, I can vouch him on that. I've spent <laughs> enough, enough photo shoots in various times and he is literally working. He'll, he'll shoot all day. And then when all the riders are like, there, like cracking open the beers and having a good time. He's there still cracking open the beers, but with the laptop open, just edit, 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 edit until like he passes out and then repeat. <laughs> it's it's, it's well, pretty no, yeah. impressive work, work ethic. But like as a photographer or video guys, you know, we have to charge the batteries in the evening, get all the memory cards onto the computer, do the editing. You know, that's quite a long process if you've been shooting all day. Then be ready to go the next morning. I can't just have everything lying around. But you, you kind of got to be ready always for the next move. The worst thing is like all the riders are out there and you're not ready. You're kind of fiddling around in the car trying to sort out some sort of broken thing or whatever you know, it's kind of a almost a 24 7 operation mm. um with the editing you know just keeping on top of everything <laughs> yeah i usually get up early as well uh, if we're not shooting I'll, I'll wake up super early carry on editing so any shoot i'm at that's like say it's a proper photo shoot i'm either editing or shooting and then kind of eating while i'm editing or drinking beer while i'm editing I'd, I try and just you work the whole time. You? <laughs> I can yeah, I obviously get through beer. It helps me get through. Yeah, drinking beer helps me get through it, especially at like PWA events where I'm quite often sat there with Chris Yates, the press guy, at eleven or twelve at night, and we're still working. But we've usually got like ten empty beer bottles by the side of us, which probably slows us down, but it keeps us sane. I'm not advising it, but that's my way of getting through. What would you say for the sort of photographer groms out there? Like, how do you, where would you start? What what gear would you buy first? Obviously, these days, all the cameras are getting better and better. And there's, there's, a, there's now a kind of balance between video and stills photography. You know, for not too much money, well, depending on your budget, but like for a few thousand, you can get a basic setup that will get you by. Obviously... You know, the experienced photographers 
windsurfing guys out there like Simon Crowther, Jerome Hove, Eric Ader, all the other guys. Um, you know, they've got tens of thousands worth of camera gear. So it's quite hard to compete with them because they've got all the best stuff already. And if you've just got the basics, it's enough to do the job. But, um, you know, if you want to reach the top, you kind of need to have all the gear, all the water housings, a drone probably, you know, the big lens, which is like up to 10 grand. You know, there's lots of stuff to buy. But like you can also get a basic Canon 100 to 400 lens, which is great for about one and a half thousand, maybe a body for a thousand and another couple of lens. It all costs money. You know, obviously, if you want to be good, you need the best equipment and, you know, you need to spend money. Um, you can't do it on a cheap budget, really. Plus, there's not so many jobs out there. No. So it's, it's a pretty tough market to break into really six or seven full-time windsurf photographers on the in the world then there's a, a bunch of other guys that are local that uh, make bits of money yeah i yeah, guess just, it's the same it's the same with like being a windsurfer you, you got to do it for for the fun of it and not think of it as a career because it's such a hard career to do yeah that's, that's how, yeah yeah that's how most of us all got involved just because we were kind of passionate we like swimming out you keep a uh, taking the water shots and enjoy getting a good photo. I've had 30 years of traveling around the world, taking photographs of windsurfing. I can't really complain about that. I enjoy it. I've been very lucky. Now the idea of the podcast is to have a sort of new topic each episode. And this episode we're talking about uh, photo shoots. At the moment, obviously, this would normally be the time of, of photo shoots. So I thought it'd be quite what an appropriate topic and I guess to start with I guess is like if I was a brand and I wanted to do a photo shoot like where do you start with it where do you go when do you go who do you go with how many people and all this stuff from from my side I've kind of been involved like a little bit in in the organization of them I've been, I've been involved in them in from, from all different angles but um more recently sort of from uh from the kind of organizing angle a little bit and the, the main thing is like when when's the gear ready and that's why it's all you know most gear is launched kind of around about july each year so therefore it needs to be shot about sort of three months ahead and so it all so that's why more or less most of the shoots take place in sort of march april time and if and then so then it's a case of where's good in march and april and pretty much that's what that's maui Maui for, for me is one of the best places. Um, we've been shooting a lot in South Africa, but it, which is great as well, but it means you have to have everything done a little bit earlier. So we have to have everything ready kind of around January, February time. And then on top of that, you, you need who's going to be there and who's going to take the photos. Yeah. How many, how many people do you reckon like the whole operation is? Uh, it really depends. You know, I've, I've been on, you know, some of the, the early days when we did like the F2 shoots, I mean, we did the, I did an F2 shoot with, with JC on the Itoma boat. And I don't know what the budget must have been for that, but it must have been crazy. We rented a boat. We had, I think, probably about 10 riders. We had JC there. We had a video guy there. We had the marketing manager there. We had everything. And we were a, a week or 10 days. I can't, I can't remember, but, you know, a long time on this boat. Um, so that... That's obviously like a, you know, what I've called definitely a high budget one. 
and then you can also do them pretty low-key like um, I've done a couple of shoots where we just got like a, a couple of products to shoot and you know I've flown out to Maui with one rider and four boards and a couple of sails and just like JC's rented a, a helicopter for an afternoon you go like bang 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 and you and you get it done so they're, 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 it all changes but mostly it just comes down to how much money you've got in your pocket I think yeah I get there's a few brands like the bigger brands anyway they sort of rent a house don't they or I don't know how it works with R&D but they sort of get everyone together and get all the kit together all the different riders like and do it back in the day them. some some of the starboard <laughs> shoots that JC did yeah. back in the day I can tell you <laughs> ridiculous they had like like three houses like 50 riders <laughs> I remember <laughs> yeah I remember I think it was about the year 2002 around that area we they did a starboard shoot in, in Maui and I think they had 60 riders um <laughs> yeah we couldn't find anywhere for to meet for the first sort of introduction meeting because there were so many people they couldn't come around to the house they'd rented um so we had to meet in mama's fish house car park which is just near who keeper and there was 60 riders two photographers a couple of video guys all the guys from the starboard head offices and i was just thinking to myself oh my god this is just the most monumental task ever <laughs> and they're giving out piles of stickers t-shirts you know all this stuff to all the guys and there and then obviously each day you organize these people there's got to be some sort of message that goes out in the morning to 60 different people of you know where you're going to meet or you know what's the plan is but obviously you can't just have 60 guys rock up at a beach and like who keep it you just you know Obviously, you have to divide it into the different sections of the shoot, like the the wave guys or the free ride guys or whatever. But they quite often just keep inviting extras, and you turn up and they'd be like, "Oh, blimey, I've got thirty guys here," and you, you know, it makes your life quite difficult trying to organise. I was going to say, I remember seeing seeing you at, at Baby Beach in Maui, which is like a it's like a tiny little beach, and it's like amazing jumping if you've got like you need two or three guys is probably the most efficient yeah maybe, maybe four maybe yeah. four <laughs> like and they're there and you got like i think you had levi on starboard then and he's like you know you got levi and bougemar who are the guys that are going to do the sick jumping shots and then like you just there were suddenly like 40 guys on the wall with like guys doing forwards on formula boards and like just like absolute carnage and i, I can imagine yeah, you just crying <laughs> on the beach <laughs> Again, funnily enough, at those times, there was like a 12 or 13-year-old Philip Costa sent out there, you know, amongst those guys, which at the time, you didn't know he was going to be multiple world champion. But it just shows Starboard kind of sometimes, the way they throw threw everything in the pot, you know, it sometimes came out with some quite good results. But yeah, it was kind of crazy. Everyone used to laugh at Starboard sometimes because everyone was out every time, but it's kind of just the way they rolled. So in um, the ideal world, what you you take turns with the riders, I guess. Yeah, no, as time it was just like carnage, no, wasn't it? <laughs> as time goes on, uh, you know, most companies, you know, like f for instance, Fanatic or Gastro or whatever, they're very efficient. They know what needs to be done. They know they can just send out the best guys to do the stuff. You know, if you're doing a wave shoot, a hoop keeper, you send out. You know, if you're Fanatic, you send out 
Victor, Adam Lewis, Mark Parry, you know, the top guys, and you get the shots. You don't send out all the racers in between, you know, like flying around while you're trying to get the wave shots. Uh, they know that they know what to do these days. So yeah, it's a bit more organized, but it could be chaos back in the day. Yeah, obviously, Hawaii, everyone thinks blue sky, you know, perfect trades every day. But that place can rain like no tomorrow. And it can come out of nowhere, driving rain. The wind's all gone. And you're in the middle of a, say you've rented out a helicopter for a thousand bucks an hour. Now what do you do? Do you wait around? Hopefully the rain will clear or there's all these decisions to be made. All these other factors come in, let alone the wind dropping it getting too busy or now maybe another shoot will turn up where you plan to shoot. It's all kind of chaos on the water. Maybe 10 years ago, an epic wave day at Hukipa, you could have five shoots going on. You could have about five photographers in the water, helicopters, like two helicopters in the air. And you people trying, helicopters as well, they were you? battling for the sky. I remember being told I was going to get flown out of the sky if I went up in a helicopter during someone else's shoot or something. And, it was, it was just, uh, everyone calls it the circus. And that, you know, that's why some companies have branched out. For instance, RRD go to Cape Town, Starboard and Severn have been doing their shoots in Australia. And they can go somewhere totally on their own. And Australia is a lot light, less likely for it to rain. Same as Cape Town. You get, if it's blue sky and windy, you kind of got 10 hours of that. And you can, and they can go well, to I've got the... to say, like for me, like Maui, like like you say, it rains a lot. But then, when it when the sun does come out, it, it's it's the most efficient place you can. I remember I've done a shoot there before where it was like literally we had it was just the worst weather. We had two weeks of rain, and then more or less in one day with sun, you got a whole photo shoot done. Um, whereas Cape Town, there's a lot more driving around and it's kind of like a slightly different vibe. You need a bit more time, I think. But, but like you say, you, 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 have, di you have different problems. You, mm. you don't have problems with people fighting over helicopters. But, um, but yeah, just finding the right day, the right place to be and all of that stuff, it, it's like, uh, that, that's the skill there. Probably. Yeah, Maui's very, very efficient. Like from Hukipa down to Kanaha, it's probably about, 10 miles or something and in yeah. between that you've got you've got your wave spot you've got Spreckersville for jumping you've got Kanaha for free ride and if it's raining there you can quite often go to Kihei which is only another five ten minutes drive and that's always sunny and windy I don't think I've ever had a shoot where you've not actually got it done in Hawaii which is pretty amazing really yeah, yeah. Australia is a whole nother ball game you know those guys don't mind driving out there and you know, for instance, from Nalu all the way to Esperance, you're talking two days of driving or something crazy. You can well, probably so we, do it we did, <laughs> The shoot we did in Oz, we did like, I think it was 5,000 kilometers in 10 days, wasn't it, JC? Yeah. We had, we, yeah. We had, I think we had seven vehicles and they all did five or 6,000 kilometers. And if you add that all up, it equates to driving around the world. I worked it out at the time. <laughs> you put it all back to back. But uh, like it might be windy in Geraldton one day and then that pattern finishes and then you maybe have to drive right down south, which is maybe a thousand Ks, which is, you know, if you've got a weak shoot, 
that means you can't really afford to drive during the day. So you maybe have to drive at night to get to the next place to start shooting the next day. So that becomes, you know, quite hard work. Yeah. How, long are the, the how long are the shoots <laughs> normally? Are they week, two weeks? Uh, I'd say at the most, they're about two weeks. But generally, you know, a normal shoot's probably about a week. Well, for instance, I think this year in Cape Town, RRDs was a month. Yeah, it was long, I remember. But they divided it into kiting and windsurfing. So the windsurfing was the first half and the kiting was the second half. I, I think you need, you need more time. For me, you need more time in Cape Town. Like in Maui, I think 10 days is a pretty long time in Maui. But I think in Cape Town, like you need sort of two weeks to just because you've got to move around a bit and there's always a few days where the wind doesn't blow and yeah but yeah like you were asking at the beginning lucas uh the logistics say you're flying out to hawaii for a week you know you've got to fly out maybe all the riders uh the designer the marketing guy probably two videographers a, a photographer pay for houses for them it's, it's quite a, a lot of money at yeah, stake for this one week. And obviously, you know, the, as a photographer, that's your kind of responsibility is to try and do your best for these guys. You, you can't afford to waste any time of that week. Also, you know, getting the riders to the beach on time, it's, it's great when everyone's on the same page and they, they understand what the brand are trying to do and get all their images and all that stuff. But quite often... You know, if you let guys go off for lunch, they don't come back. Or, you know, they say, I'll be back at two. They turn up at half two or whatever. So, you know, you have to get lunch for them at the beach to kind of keep them there to keep the shoot rolling. But I guess it's, it's a lot of money down the drain if it goes wrong or all these things happen. I well, it, could be a, it could be a catastrophe yeah. if you've paid all that money for a week in Hawaii for a house, you know, uh, cars, flying out some riders, getting the gear there, all that, you know, effort and logistics. And then you get a duff forecast where there's, there's, there's no wind or, you know, there's one day or something. Any photo shoot disasters? Uh, yes, lots. <laughs> <laughs> where do I start? Um, you know, in an ideal world, every day you wake up on a photo shoot, it's perfect blue sky, say you're in Hawaii, trade winds, the waves you want or the nice flat water you want, you know, everything's there and you just got a small group of people, you go and do the shots, everything goes smooth, someone brings you your lunch and you carry on shooting, do some lifestyle in the evening, go home, edit, drink your beers, you know, that's a good day. Nine times out of ten, it just doesn't work out like that. You know, you only get one chance to shoot certain things, but, you know, things go wrong, your cameras break down, you mess up with a memory card or any anything can go wrong. So you're kind of under pressure and trying to think all the time, you know, am I doing this right? I've got my water housing set up right. I can't afford for this to leak or, you know, anything like that. But I've had loads and loads of disasters, though. I could write a book about them. I've had some good ones with Bjorn Dunkerbeck. Not necessarily shooting, like we were on a boat in Australia and we'd had a pretty good day. We'd hide out this massive like 60 foot boat to go to Rottnest Island. At the end of the day, the sun went down. Bjorn was like flying in front of the boat and I got some nice shots of the flash. 
and everyone got back on the boat and Bjorn, he looked around to me and he said, tonight we drink. And I was like, oh, oh God, no. <laughs> I don't like the sound of this. <laughs> so yeah, the beers came out. Ben Severn, he's not shy of a few beers, nor Scotty McCurchie was on there. Uh, so we all kind of drunk loads of beer and, you know, it was kind of good fun night on the boat. But definitely too much was consumed. I didn't do any editing. Anyway, in the morning, I got up out of the cabin and I'm like, I needed a, to have a quick wee over the side of the boat. So I was like walking up to the front and I trod on this board bag and I heard this like, Ugh, uh, and the zip opened and it was Dunkerbeck inside. I just trod on his head. <laughs> so yeah, he. If you've ever seen Dunkerbeck's eyes when they're kind of in the laser mode, he he was, definitely wasn't happy with me at that time. Oh, yeah, really, Guy boy, uh, any disaster yeah, from 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 a sailor point of view? I remember one of like my my early early F two shoots, and I, at the time I was like a rookie, and all you're trying to do is you know just impress and do the like in those days you're just trying to do the craziest shot or everything, and they gave me like the brand new board. And I went out her keeper and went pretty much straight on the rocks. And I've been on the rocks a lot of times, but this time it, like I just saw the board get launched into a, into a rock and snapped the nose and tail clean. It was like absolute right off of a board. And then you have to come in and like you got the, back then you like always had like the, the marketing manager waiting on the beach and you're there like just scraping the bits of gear off. <laughs> All brand new, all brand new, like, and, and have to sort of go back and go like, uh, and if you're lucky, they give you another one, and you can't do it again. But don't, yeah, lots like that. And then, from an organisation point of view, like, I think for me, like the the heli shoots, like they're so stressful. I mean, like you sort of organise it all really carefully, like two minute section. Okay, right, first is like this guy on this board with this sail, then the other guy comes in and. And when it all goes according to plan, it's like so satisfying because you just like nail it and you have like the best stuff and it's pretty much in, in one hour you've got the shoot done. And then when it goes wrong, it just like kind of spirals out of control. And we had one, well, actually, I think JC was shooting it when we were, last time we were in Maui with, with RRD. And we had this whole, whole plan like, oh, yeah, this guy, then this guy, this guy joins this. And then a couple of the guys just like started just sailing off downwind and they like just disappeared and then it all kind of, and then they couldn't get back. They were supposed to like come in and change their gear and go back out again, but they weren't there. So then we carried on sailing and then the, the guy on the beach had like the, the full list of all the order on his phone and he had gone in the water. The phone had then like locked itself, but no one knew the, the, the password to get it open. So no one knew the order. No, and like half the guys were like downwind. And then you're just like out on the water, just stressing. And then JC's obviously up in the chopper, like looking down. He's got no idea what's going on. He just carries on shooting. And then, yeah, then just like I say, the whole thing just spirals out of control. And then it's just a, like a mess. At the mm. end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, luckily, technology's got a bit better. We now have phones in the, in the helicopter normally. So someone can send us a message or, or I can send a message, say, that guy's run was a load of rubbish. Can you do it again later on? Or yeah. Also, like about three years ago, I was up in a helicopter with Jamie Hancock shooting Gastra. And we were out of lane shooting 
Thomas Traversa, Ross, and a few other guys. And I was quite kind of happy with the angle we were shooting. We're getting these classic shots, but Jamie's like super keen on the video and he kind of wanted the guy to start flying backwards and doing some funky stuff. <laughs> so the helicopter guy started flying backwards, which was kind of a bit weird for him because the wind was blowing the wrong way into the heli or whatever. And all of a sudden, we just started spiraling out of control and the helicopter was going down to the water. Like, I was just like, we are going in. And like, I looked out of the side of the helicopter and the tail was touching the water. We were that low. The guy was like a maverick, maverick pilot just hanging onto the control. Trying, we were just like, oh my God, we're going in, we're going in. And suddenly he just managed to like get, grab a hold of it. And the helicopter just rose up slowly. And I, like, my heart was just going like 100 miles an hour. And I looked around to Jamie and he was just like bright red, just like his eyes were like bulging open. And we were just, oh my God. And the pilot goes, sorry, 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 sorry. I did, you know, I got some sort of vortex on me or something like this. And we, we flew up to about 500 feet and just sat there for like a minute and just getting our sort of uh, heart rates down and, we actually were halfway through the shoot and then we had to go and carry on and do it again. <laughs> but it was, uh, that was a scary moment, isn't it? It's a high pressure week for, for everyone, really. Even the riders are kind of under pressure. Yeah. You know, the wave sailors, like the video guys want them to make their moves. They don't want them to almost do a 360 because that's kind of... Yeah, I guess you, know, you get that on the picture, <laughs> but then the video and then... Yeah, the video is kind of tough. You know, there's different, uh, for a photo, you can get a guide in a mega tweaked air. That could be the shot of the shoot, but maybe then crashes and wrecks everything. And it's for the video guy, it's not the same thing. As a, as a rider, I hate, like, I, I, I'd much rather split them, but it's, it's impossible to ever do it. But like, if you, if you know that there's someone just shooting stills, you could just go like crazy and just go massive and get in the, the most contorted tweak position you can. But then if they're videoing, you need to kind of like pull it back a little bit because like you said, like JC says, if you don't land it, it's kind of pretty useless. Mm. So I know like, you know, we, we were working with Jamie Hancock this year and he's like, he's amazing at it. But he'd get, because I'm a good friend with him, he'll be like brutally honest and just go like, fucking idiot. Like you had the sick wave, you did all that and then you messed it up at the end, you did this and <laughs> made it, it would have been the best shot of the thing. And like, well, why the fuck did you try that? And you're like, oh. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I guess yeah. there's quite a lot of pressure for like, especially like maybe the younger guys who sort of join a big brand and then you go to shoot and all these photographers and mm. I think for me it's like le it's much less stressful when you're. I think when you, when you come along, you're just like you're so just desperate to do everything in a way and just like go crazy and whatever. Like I'm, you know, my first shoot, I remember going there and we got to a keeper. It was like perfect four seven weather like logo to mast high like the best day ever and there's there was like levi there at the time and they give him like the, the super new waveboard with the best sail and then peter bulwark comes along and they give him the the, the super waveboard the next size up and then it was ponch and, and by i was like right at the back of the queue and by the time i got there they're like they give me some free ride board and like a sail was about a meter too big and i'm just like at the time i'm just like yeah no problem i'm like going there just like just killing myself on this free ride board just trying to do massive jumps and all the rest of it but happy as happy as larry now yeah. i'm a bit older i'll be like i ain't taking that <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> but, but 
Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different thing. I think when you're young, you just like go for it and you don't care. And you don't, I don't think you feel the pressure so much. You're just mm. trying to get a good shot. And then when you, when you realize kind of a bit later, like what's at stake and, you know, if you mess this up, like, oh, it's a nightmare, then, it, then, then the pressure gets a bit more, I think. Mm. Going back to what you said, is there like, there's a certain amount of kit and sort of the better riders get the better kit or how does that work? Oh, yeah, for, for sure, for sure. Like, um, still, still now there's like, it, not everyone's fighting over it, but there'll be, the best thing is if you've got like a good, a good mix of riders. Like this year was really nice because we had like, most of the guys were really small. So they all take the small stuff and I could pretty much pick what I wanted. But like, you know, in the old days, it'd be when it was like myself, Andrea Rosati and Flo Young, we're all pretty much the same weight. And somehow I'd always end up on like a massive board and, you know, it's like perfect conditions in Cape Town. It's super windy and I'm on like a 96 litre wayboard trying to, trying to make it look good while they're on their perfect little board ripping it up. So there's always a, a bit of a fight. But um, It's like the football bit, changing room at school, like everyone wants a number 10 shirt or whatever, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's more, it's more than that because like you know that if you're, you know, if it's this classic day, like I know for me, my best board, I'd want to be on something like a, 80, 85 lead would be perfect. And if you end up on something tiny or something massive, you're just, you're just kind of struggling. And you're like, oh, I wish I had the better board or this and that. Mm. I guess, well, not, not all the riders, but a lot of them have custom boards and then they sort of have to go to the photo shoot and sort of ride a completely new board at the factory or whatever. Is that quite hard to do as well? Yeah, well, there's some story. I won't say who, but there's some people like <laughs> I've heard that story too. <laughs> yeah. Some people like you know they they used to ripping up who keeper on their on their custom board, and then they turn up at a photo shoot, and they give them like a you know a board that's ten liters bigger than what they ride, designed for onshore, and it's like going off who keeper. And I've, I've heard cases of them saying, oh, "I ain't using that." But off. Mm. Uh, yeah, we, there was Brian a case. <laughs> With a certain high-profile rider that uh, his his manager was telling him to use a board that he'd keep it in front of everyone, and he outrightly refused. He was like, I am not going out on that. And the marketing manager, yes, you are. No, I'm not. And the, they just had this massive row in front of everyone at keep I can't really name him, but it was... You have to imagine it's in front of everyone. It's like not just in front of all his team, because like everyone's shooting there. It's in front of... Mm. All the teams in the whole world, all the marketing managers of the whole world, and they're having this like row on the beach. It was a great moment to watch. As long as <laughs> I wasn't involved in it, it was perfect. There's some, there's some people you have to kind of like, don't know what the word is, like manage them. It's a bit like mm. a football manager, isn't it? I'm sure I know you do that brilliantly, JC. You have to like, certain guys, you have to talk to them in the right way, make somebody more, more sometimes, like, sometimes some of the, the superstars of the shoot, they don't want to go out. They kind of, yeah, but I've already done some good stuff, you know. Like, I, you know, I've 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 got my shots, and you're like, yeah, but the light's better now. You know, can you just go out for like half an hour. Uh, maybe, you know, it's, it's that type of thing. Also on shoots, you know, the first couple of days, everyone's super motivated. They all turn up on time. You know, they work hard, da di da. But then some of the guys kind of think, okay, I've done my bit now. You know, the next day I can kind of relax and turn up, but you know, when I feel like it, stuff like that, and that's part of the battle of the shoot is to kind of keep everyone motivated and like john said there's certain boards that maybe some guys don't really want to ride it's kind of not so much fun and you've got to get someone to go on it um like the starboard we used to always have muzzer chris murray he'd go out on anything 
you know, because he was just like, he, he's a good, your go-to guy to go on a go or any sort of free ride board. Yeah, I'll do that. So that was kind of handy to have that guy around, whereas you couldn't really go to Polical. Can you go out on a, you know, the beginner board or something like that? It's kind of, you know, well, I'm the wave guy, you know, I just do the cool stuff. But, you know, after two or three days on a shoot, if you start asking to people to rock up the beach at half past six in the morning, they're kind of, do we have to? You know, it's kind of people are starting to get tired. They think they've done the job. Worse for that was always like, was Whitey. He'd like, when we were doing the shoots in Cape Town, we'd literally maybe have three sessions in the day and it'd be kind of like eight o'clock at night, absolutely punished, like giving it all all day. And he's like, oh, I've got this amazing shot. And then he'd make me put on a wet wetsuit, rig up a sail, climb onto like this rock in the middle, <laughs> like with waves breaking over it, just to get this like golden shot with the sunset and the wave breaking. And at the time you're just like, oh, you just want to kill him. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, but Remember, sometimes the shots come out really good. <laughs> ben Severne was really mean. Uh, Back in the day, these two Aussie guys came over, Luke Wormsley and Ty Bodycoat. And we'd had a pretty hard day at the beach, shooting waves all day. And he told them, oh, yeah, we're going to meet tomorrow at Spreckersville at 6 a.m. And obviously, he had no intention of doing this. He just, these guys went down there at 6 a.m. And Ben was just at home. Well, no one else even knew about it. Ben was home at bed, in bed, and we were just getting up having breakfast. And these guys had gone to Spreckersville at 6 for just a stitch up basically so if you ever go on a shoot lucas uh if someone tells you to go to the top of haliakala at five in the morning <laughs> and maybe check with a few other guys that uh it's a definite plan yeah. <laughs> what's, what's the day in a life for, for a rider at a shoot yeah yeah i mean it it, it changes massively the the best one like in maui it's generally pretty relaxed because you can't go sailing early uh, whoever's managing it will be like okay Tomorrow we're going to try and do this, um, and depending on what that is, like, you know, you'll be sometimes up. Like in Cape Town, you get up really, really early because the the sun to get the good light, you have to basically sail before about ten o'clock in the morning. And some of the spots are two hours away, so quite often we'll wake up at like five thirty, drive quite often to the Cape or or to the southern side. Then you'll sail hopefully get the shots if all goes according to plan and then look for a second session maybe with the evening light and and then come back and and be punished and then the, when you have a day off there's nowadays more than ever there's like so many extra things to do like all these sort of like you know something for a video you need to do this like ah oh, yeah we need you rigging next to a next to a rock or loading up the car or 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 talking this or describing this or doing a rigging video or whatever. So it's like, there's, there's always something to do. Ticking the boxes, you know, you've got to look at what you've got. There might be waves every day that are in getting better and better, but you've, you haven't shot any free ride and you kind of, at some point you can't just do five minutes of free ride and say that's done. That's probably the, the best selling piece of equipment. So you kind of, you know, that's just as important. Even beginner stuff is just as important as your, your best wave shots you know mo you know obviously most people want to have fun and do the waves but that other stuff and you know, nowadays you've got foiling you've got slalom you've got beginners there's and like foil you know like a lot of uh, free ride boards have got a foil option so there's 
there's like so much extra stuff to do. Half the companies have got SUP boards. If, if there's no wind, you might be up at dawn shooting SUP as well. So there's just an endless amount of, yeah. yeah. And, you know, and you, you've got your marketing guy breathing down your neck all the time. Have you got the shot? Have you done this? And then obviously like say with RRD, they're a board and a sale company. So you haven't just shot the board. You've got to get the right angle of the sale. So that's a whole nother thing to be having your head is like, Oh yeah, I might've got a good shot of the board or I've got a great shot of the sale, but I couldn't see the deck of the board. Mm. We, we, we had it actually a few years ago. We had like different release dates of different equipment. And then that was a nightmare. You had to like shoot. Sometimes you had to shoot a board with last year's sale because it was going to be released before the next year's sale. And then you had to shoot again with next year's sale. Sometimes with like different harnesses and different wetsuits and, and coordinating all of that. And again, like JC said, ticking all the boxes, you know, you finish it and you go like, ah, oh, no, we haven't got that sale with that board and we need to, and then you have to try and like rush it out. You think about a company as their whole year's future is going into promoting their products with the videos and the photos that come out of that week. Maybe they're hedging most of their investment into that one week to get the material they need to make their money to sell, you know, in selling those products. Do you, do you like that pressure? You enjoy it? Or would, if I said to you, would you rather do like a big, a big brand shoot or, or like a trip somewhere? Um, a trip for sure or you, you you enjoy the kind of like the organization side of it there's there's obviously a massive pressure to doing a big like say the fanatic shoot which is one of the biggest there's so when you see the pile of equipment at the beginning it's like oh my god this is huge you see all the riders turn up the first day and that you know everyone's you know they're there to get good pictures the company wants good pictures and yet they're kind of relying on you and the video guys to get a killer product at the end. So you're kind of under pressure. But if you've had a few good days where you've, oh, I've got a really good shot then, and I always come back to Fnatic and say, oh, I've got a couple, and that's our little joke line. But uh, if you've had a few good days where you know you've like had an amazing heli shoot with all the, fr all the free ride stuff to kind of got a good chunk of that done, you know, a good day in the water at Hikipa, a helicopter shoot at Hikipa, and you know you're starting to get the shoot kind of in your under the belt, then you can kind of start enjoying it. But up until that point, it's kind of it's a lot of pressure. Like on the way home from Maui, my little tradition is to always go. There's this bar at the airport, and there's got a, one of Robbie Nash's sails on the roof. I go, barman, give me a pint. They fill it up. I drink it down. Another one, please. And I drink like a couple of pints straight down. And just sit at the table and go, thank God for that. But like, it's a it's a satisfying feeling because you've like, you've conquered the shoot. You know, you've done the job. This is something I really, really wanted to know. Obviously, you get all this gear. What what do you do with it afterwards? Because you don't give it to the riders, do you? I don't know. We we do a bit of a mix of everything. We basically you're just trying to get rid of it and trying to get rid of it in a productive way as possible. So a lot of the time, if you can give it to riders, it's great. And that'll be like, you know, maybe they're, I don't know, whatever, they get like three boards for the year and they're one of their boards that they want is a 80 litre wave board. And you have one there, you give it to them, perfect. The rider's got the board and you've got rid of it. So that's, that's gold. Um, after that, like often you'll try and sell it. If there's like shops there, like we, in Maui, we had, like, there was an RD shop 
and we try and like get rid of as much as possible there. If you've got not, not got too much left, you can bring it all home. But like with the RD shoot this year where we had uh, kite, wing, sup, windsurf, foil, in the end, so much stuff. We actually spent like two days um, preparing it all to be shipped back in a container from, from Cape Town. But there was, there was obviously enough of it to, to warrant shipping it all back. Obviously now with drones coming in, what's when do you use a helicopter? When do you use a drone? Is it on more of the budget or what's the deal? Uh, I, I guess it depends on location as well. Like in Hawaii, getting a helicopter for an hour is probably quite a worthwhile investment if you've got all your free ride gear and everything ready to go. Not necessarily need it for the waves, but maybe for the free ride, that one hour can be super productive. You can shoot maybe 20, 25 boards, you know, the same amount of sails in that hour of super high quality, getting the decks and all that stuff. But obviously a photographer's got a bunch of lenses, zooms and all sorts of stuff. So you can take loads of different shots at quite high quality. Whereas with a drone, you know, that could take days getting the right shots. And For me still, like the, the drone for, for video, I think it is it's right up there with a helicopter. But I think for stills... Uh, I don't think you get anywhere near the efficiency of, a, of, a, of renting a helicopter still for quality. Obviously, loads of places don't just have a heliport there. You know, if you're south of Cape Town, down at the point, Cape Point, um, there's no helicopters around. So obviously the drone comes into its own there. But we, had um, a we had a nightmare. We, we spent years trying to get a heli. Because in Maui, that's the gold in Maui, is that you get a helicopter and in, you rent it for one hour and you have the whole thing done. And in Cape Town, we were always missing these those free ride shots. And one one year we managed to finally get a helicopter. We organized it all for Langaban. We're like, okay, yeah, we went up there, we rigged like everything like you do for a heli shot. We had like, you know, 20 boards and sails ready to go. The pilot takes off from, from Cape Town and he's halfway up and then we get a call saying like, ah, he can't fly in Langaban because it's like a nature reserve. So um, he's going to have to go like down the coast a bit. So we're like, fuck, we have like 20 minutes to, we've got all the stuff rigged. So we're like, ah, oh, we're going to sail it down. So we would jump on our stuff and we sailed like about 10 kilometers down the coast. Uh, in the meantime, we lost everyone. The wind dropped. <laughs> we ended up like, <laughs> I ended up on one beach and Roberto was driving in the van to try and meet us. We lost everyone. And then I think the helicopter turned around and gave up in the end. Maui, you can just like they take like literally the heliports about like 500 meters from where you go sailing in Kanaha, right? Yeah, you literally take off, go over the runway, there's palm trees, and you're at Kanaha, and it's like two, two or three minutes transit time to be sh pretty much shooting straight away. If you were paying per hour for a helicopter's thousand dollars an hour, you've only wasted five minutes getting there and back. Whereas, mm. you know, for instance, I did a shoot. Uh, a couple of years ago in New Caledonia and the helicopter had to fly 20 minutes just to get to the, the right spot where they wanted to shoot. Another little story on top of this, the night before the guys, I'm not going to mention the brand or any names, but the guys had loaded up these boards in the back of a van for the shoot and they, they'd taken the board bags out of the van in the morning and gone on boats all the way to this remote island in New Caledonia. 
but they didn't know some other guys had been fiddling around in the van before and rearranged all the bags. So when they got to this island, which the helicopter's due to arrive in like 40 minutes time, instead of having the luxury of just getting everything ready, they opened the zips of the board bags and basically all the wrong boards were in the bags. They just had white uh, test boards for the shoot. And I was already on my way in the helicopter. <laughs> so it was a complete, utter disaster. Uh, the boat had to like rush back to the mainland, change the right for the right board bags. And I, I was kind of arriving as the boat re-returned with the right gear. Nothing was ready. And I'm up in this helicopter flying around going, what in the hell is going on? You can see these guys scampering around on the beach trying to rig it all up. Skyboy, where would you say is like your favourite place to shoot? Because you sort of migrated to Cape Town already, haven't they? I think I don't know. They've all, they've all got their pluses and, and and negatives. I think the the, the best couple of shoots over there were like the we had a couple with, with F two that were the one one on the Itoma boat was was amazing. I don't know if you know about the Itoma boat. It's like a catamaran set up for windsurf gear, and we had like. 10 guys, some real characters on there. We had like Finian, Peter Bulwer, Tonky, JC was shooting it. And Nina. And Nina, yeah, Nina was on there. Um, and, and, and yeah, and Karen and Patrick as well with like the, the kind of like the organizers with Alex. I don't know, it's just a, just a really good experience because you just sort of go on this boat and just bob around Cape Verde Islands, going from island to island. Yeah, it was pretty, that was pretty epic. The Oz trip was really good the year after. Lots of driving and just, yeah, good crack. The first day of the Oz trip, um, they basically asked us, all the riders, to rig the gear on this grass in Perth somewhere. And we took a load of photos of that. And then they said, we're going to a beer factory. And we all went to this beer factory and we basically made five barrels of our own beer concoction that was due to be mature in two weeks time which is when the shoot ended so we went off on the shoot for two weeks all over up to Nalu, Margaret River all over the place and then on the last day of the shoot we came back to Perth to the beer factory we picked up our five barrels of beer and then we had a party with the beer that we brewed the first day and that was kind of quite a nice way to finish it don't you remember that Skyboy? I don't, I don't remember the party because that, that party, I got so messed up. <laughs> that, 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 I was like unconscious in the back of the car. That's why I remember that party. Um, we rented out five, I think it was five like camper vans um, and a couple of cars. And basically we could just sleep where we wanted every night. And like towards the end of the shoot, one of the camper vans crashed into a cow. Um, it's on the way to Nalu, wasn't it? We'd driven yeah. like literally, I don't know, we'd driven like 10 hours or something. I don't know how you crash into a cow. They're like the most stationary objects you'll ever crash into, wasn't it? But, yeah, the like... cow walks off into a field perfectly <laughs> fine. And this camper van was destroyed. So basically they had to move all their gear into all the other camper vans and it became a bit clustered, didn't it? But uh, we got through it in the end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the rest... When we were driving back, do you remember the, the beer heist, JC? Yeah, I was just thinking of that, actually, yeah. We, we were driving back, we had to, we'd shot in Esperance, and we were heading back to Perth, which I think is a, about a 10-hour drive, something like, yeah, like 600 miles or something like that. 
we're leaving off at night. And as you do in Australia, if you've got like a long drive, you get like a big carton of, of beer for, for your trip. So like we both got a carton for each car and we set off. And then after like an hour, an hour and a half, like yeah, I remember you were in the car in front and we were on the no, car. I was, I was in the rear car. You're in the rear car. Okay, you, you and we we start, I was in the front car and I was in a different car from you. So anyway, like we're driving along and they start flashing, flashing, waving us in. So we pull in at a lay-by, and then JC comes out and he's like, "Ah, oh, guys, I've got this really good idea for a shot. Like, I need you all lined up with your backs to the car, with the headlights on you, taking a piss. Like, I think it'll be amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah." So we're like, "Okay, yeah, yeah, cool." So we're all there and we're like lining it all up and. Rules stood there. No, wait, wait, wait. So, no, like, look, look that way. Look that way. It'll be really good with the lights behind you. Anyway, we do this stupid shoot, and I was just like, oh, okay, whatever. I hope that comes out a good shot. And we get back in the car, and like they're just like wheel spinning off and disappear into the distance. We're like, oh, that's a bit weird. Whatever. We get back in the car. It's like, all right, pass me a beer. We look in the back. The crate's gone. The bastards have run out of beer in their car. <laughs> Orchestrated the whole plot and. And just basically robbed us while we were had our backs turned getting a photo. That was my idea. That was. I'm sure. I'm sure it was. How's your name? We're in all over it. <laughs> we 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 overtook them on the highway with our with the car window open. We were holding their crate in front of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. So we normally finish with a quick fire round. So just sort of quick answer. Um, I'm terrible at this. My brain's yeah. really slow. <laughs> <laughs> He's had half a bottle of whiskey and three beers. No, yeah, well, three beers, yeah, but the, the, yeah, yeah. All right, quick fire round. Winter or summer? I think summer because I don't really have a winter anymore. I like autumn. If I was in the UK, it'd be definitely autumn and winter, but I don't really have that now. So, Skyboy, one board, one sail for the rest of your life. 85 litre, the, the new the new wave coat that's coming out um, with a probably a 5.0. I think a 5.0, I can do anything with it. And JC, one camera for the rest of your life. Uh, I wouldn't mind the new 1DX Mark III. I think it's six and a half thousand pounds. Expensive. <laughs> if you could freeze a year in your life, which year would that be? Probably right up till just before the coronavirus hit, everything was going fine. I was quite happy with the way things are going, had some jobs lined up. I've got a big calendar on the wall with all these bookings. Everything dropped out and now it's I've been scribbling them out each week. <laughs> so I'd say up till about mid-March was, wasn't too bad. Skyway? In me, I'm not exactly sure what, what year it'd be, but like I think 2003, 2004, somewhere around there. Like everything was just like exploding and everything was coming together. And that, that's a cool feeling. It's been downhill ever since. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you weren't a windsurfer or if you weren't a windsurf photographer, what would you be? I was supposed to be studying computer science. So I'll be some like nerdy computer dude, I think. Uh, that's something I'm trying to figure out at the moment. I just don't know what's going to happen in the next few years, whether I can travel or, you know, I'm just suddenly have this big question mark ahead, same as everyone else. Uh, I have been thinking about what can I do? Not really sure where I'm going to go. Probably oh. some sort of driving, I'd imagine. Delivery driver. <laughs> could, be, could get me down to that. <laughs> You'll be all right, JC, I'm sure. And to sort of finish it off, what's your life motto? Or if you don't, what motivates you in life? 
if there's a shot to be taken, just shoot it without asking any questions or thinking about it. Because if you take your time and you know, think, oh, maybe I should ask that person or whatever, that moment goes. So just get the shot and then worry about it later. Skyboy's still thinking. Yeah, no, for, for, for me, it's always, I don't know the exact way of saying it, but like always like try and have, have a, a good work ethic, but always make sure you're having fun along with it. And if, if you're not, then working's not much point. So there's probably a better way of saying it than that. But Yeah, do, I, guess, do, I guess do what you love rather than do what makes... Yeah, and no, I think like, w- nice. yeah, work, work hard, but, but have fun doing it. Sounds, sounds good. Kind of the idea of a photo shoot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Because yeah. as, as, as soon as you stop having fun in something like a photo shoot, it just becomes like an absolute ball ache. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, brilliant, guys. Thanks. Thanks very much. And um, that's been John Sky, uh, John Carter, and me, Lucas Meldrum. See you next time. Cool. See ya. Bye. Bye. Yeah. So next time, I expect you to get Dunker Beck and Nash together for the third that Windsurf podcast. That's tricky. That got to get a got to get a manager and all that to get that sorted. But um, <laughs> nah, you can do it. Yeah, you can do it for sure.